0: Strike presents Your Hit Parade, starring Frank Sinatra.
1: Who knows what evil lurks in the
2: hearts of men? And now,
3: smile a while with Lorenzo Jones and his wife, Belle.
4: Merry go round that brings you the bright side of life that whirls you in music to all the big night
3: spots of New York town to hear the top songs of the week sung so clearly you can understand every word and sing them yourself.
5: This is the Golden Age of Radio. I'm Dick Burtell, and tonight we'll take you on another audio excursion back to radio's formative years. You'll hear the programs that made the era golden and meet
6: people who made those broadcasts a reality. The Golden Age of Radio with Dick Bertel is brought to you by Burrett Mutual Savings Bank, serving Central Connecticut since 1889, and by WTIC. You'll meet this evening's special guest after
7: these words from Burritt. Burrett Mutual Savings Bank asks you this question. Why should you save? Burrett Mutual Savings Bank will also try to answer. The reasons for savings are almost endless. One, it can open the door to your new home. Two, it can give you the means to new furniture, a new car, a boat, a vacation. Three, it can help send your children to college. Four, it can give you that glorious feeling of independence and prosperity. Don't ever feel that you have to have large amounts to save. At Burritt, deposits as small as $1 are welcome. Really welcome. Start now and save for all these reasons and perhaps some of your own. If you can't save a lot, save a little. At Burritt Mutual Savings Bank, where deposits are safe and earn good dividends. Start your account tomorrow.
6: And now, the golden age of radio, and your host, Dick Bertel. Good
5: evening. Here is radio collector Ed Corcoran once again. Ed, we have a guest tonight who is going to put the whole story of, of radio together for us, isn't
8: he? Yes, uh, Dick, we have a man who has really uh, written a book that documents radio, which has never been done before,
5: Dick. His name
9: is uh, Bill Owen.
5: Bill Owen and Frank Buxton first came out with a book called Radio's Golden Age. Bill, how far back? About six years ago?
9: Well, actually it goes back, Dick, uh, some eight years we, uh, we got the idea of uh... throwing together what was going to be a little pamphlet uh... it all started in a television studio in new york where frank was on a show and i was his announcer and we used to pass the the hours by just asking one another hey who was the star of such and such a movie and who played such and such a radio show and so, well, we came across uh... A few disagreements and one day we had this argument as to who played a certain role on radio and i said it's so and so he said it's so i can't remember which show it was at the moment Anyway, uh, I said, well, I'll, that's simple. I'll go to the Fifth Avenue Library and look it up. So I go to one of the world's foremost libraries in New York City and uh, ask the librarian for some books on the old radio programs. Well, there were books on how to build radios, how to write for radio, how to direct, but nobody had ever thought to compile a book on uh, listing who played the various roles. So Frank and I said, well, let's throw together a little pamphlet. We'll maybe have a 16-page pamphlet. We'll say who played Superman, who played Ma Perkins and Dick Tracy. So, first thing you know, we're researching a book. Neither one of us were professional writers at all. had no background in this type of thing. And it just, like Topsy, grew and grew. And first thing we know, we would would, uh, get in touch with one of the actors, and he'd give us the name of the director, the producer, the theme song, and then we'd say, well, let's put this down. And uh, Frank and I got together with these mounds of material after a year or so of this, and we said, what do we do with it now? (laughs) And uh, we said, well, let's just... Throw it together.
5: <laughs> and you published the book yourselves, yeah. as I recall.
9: And it was, it's been called different things. It's been called a, a, a giant playbill of radio. It's been called an encyclopedia reference book. I don't know yet what it is. I don't think there's any book quite uh, similar to, to what this is. It's basically a listing of, of the principal radio shows of, of what we consider the golden age, which is pre-1950. And uh, who played what? And anything else that we could find out. Now, you notice some of the entries are very sketchy. Some are very detailed and involved. We put in whatever we could come across. This meant interviewing people, talking to them, corresponding, going through thousands and thousands of publications. Uh, I went blind at the library, going through microfilm and so on. And the result is, is uh, something that I guess makes you an instant expert on old radio. <laughs> well, it's, it's been our Bible ever since this program has been on, and I do want to remind
5: our listeners that it's, its new title, which I don't think I gave, is The Big Broadcast, 1920 to 1950. This is published by Viking Press, incidentally. I suppose that uh, the natural place to turn, Bill, would be the network files themselves.
9: Well, I'll tell you, ABC uh, gave me their entire network files in a manila envelope. That's <laughs> I guess that <laughs> you <know, everything> summarizing. <laughs> yeah. When television came along, Dick and Ed, uh, it just, uh, everything uh, that pertained to radio was unimportant. I think we all remember that era very sure. sadly. It uh, they, they thought that radio was the forerunner and something new. Uh, we finally arrived, so get rid of this. I know in Cincinnati, for example, one of the great stations out there, WLW, they threw them in the basement and let them continue broadcasting, which was very nice of them. But they paid no more attention to the radio operation, and nobody even knew it was on the air. Everything was was television, and that's what happened basically at the networks. Television was, was the uh, fair-haired son. I understand that Mutual had virtually no records at all. They exactly had nothing, and it was unfortunate because uh, so many of the Mutual programs were very important in the history of radio. They had kind of a monopoly, as you'll recall, on the detective shows and a lot of the children's afternoon adventures, and uh, I would have maybe the name of, of uh, one actor on the show and possibly the actor was no longer around, And I would just strike out. So we were frustrated time after time in trying to research these shows, and we relied a lot on luck and word of mouth. We put ads in various trade journals saying, if you know anything about any of the old radio shows, get in touch with us. Now, you have to keep in mind that eight years ago is not very far back in time, but it really predates most of the nostalgia of radio, that's more or less uh, a recent thing. Possibly not for Ed, <laughs> but but in terms of of the collectors around the country, and there there were too many people who were involved in that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So we were kind of pioneering this. Well,
8: How uh, did uh, you do NBC by the way with their files?
9: NBC and CBS. I must single out particularly. Uh, we had good luck. Uh, NBC had a large room, maybe a 20 by 20 room, just uh, chock full of index cards in bad shape old, dog-eared, tattered, and so on, but they had information for each show that had ever been on the network, and uh, they gave me access to their files and uh, their recordings, and CBS uh, had excellent uh, uh, cross-reference material post-1945. Apparently, one day in 1945, somebody said, let's get organized, <laughs> and they did, but anything prior to 1945 at CBS was hit or miss, but what they had done, they, they uh, categorized each show that was on the network and they would have an individual file for it, and in this file would be everything pertaining to it. For example, uh, you would have uh, all the press releases. Each show would have its own press agent, and he would write about who's going to be in what show this week, just as they do now for TV Guide and so on. And uh, by by going blind, as I say, for a couple of years <laughs> of researching why, I was able to, uh, to uh, come up with an awful lot of material from the networks. But once we had that, that was only the foundation. That was the cornerstone. There's a great story about a tattered three-by-five index card oh, I remember that, <laughs> regarding uh, Ellery <laughs> Queen. <laughs> that was over at NBC, and the little old lady who had so kindly let me into the studios uh, was busy doing something else, and she was a little dubious about letting me have access in the first place, but here I've been working away now for three or four days making notes, and I came across the name of one of the people who had played Ellery Queen, and there was a note next to it on this card that said... Do not let anyone know that he is playing Allery Queen. I, some sort of a sponsor <laughs> conflict, I assume, is what it was all about. But that was like 1937. And, and, uh, and I called the lady over and I said, uh, Notice this note here. I guess it's all right now, isn't it, uh, 25 or 30 years later, to uh, to make note of it. And she, was, she wrinkled her brow and was quite concerned. She said, See, I just shouldn't have let you have access to these files.
8: <laughs> well, getting back to your book, Bill... Um the thing that impressed me, above everything else, was one man's family, because uh, this is a complete genealogy, everything from Father Barber right down to the <laughs> great-grandchildren. There must be 30 or 40 or 50 different people involved here, yeah. Well, all the names. How did you ever get at something like this? That's I, I really think tremendous. I mentioned,
9: yeah, that we relied on luck, and uh, this is probably a good example of, of luck. I had known a man named Walter Shepard uh, when I was stationed at the Air Force overseas, and he'd been a producer at AFN, and I'd been doing sports over there, and... Uh, uh, we came to a parting the ways. He went home and I went home and so on. And uh, then 15 or so years went by and uh, I got a call while I was doing the research. Somebody said that, that Walter Shepard is on the line from WRVR-FM in New York and wants to talk to you. And I said, Walt, how are you? And he says, yeah. He says, I uh, think you might be interested. I did some research on one man's family and I hear you're looking for material. I guess he'd responded to one of the trade journals. And I said, I sure am. And I thought maybe he'd you know, have a couple of names in an envelope <laughs> to mail to me. And it turns out that he had done a paper, a college paper, for, I believe, a master's on the subject of one man's family. So he had a very understanding professor that would tolerate a paper being turned on on that subject. But in it, as you see uh, here before you, he had done a complete genealogy. Everything you'd ever want to know, the history of it, he'd worked together with a producer and writer, Carlton E. Morse. As a matter of fact, one man's family in my mind, is the ideal entry. This is what we wish the whole book would look like. In other words, everything of, of any importance attached to that show is listed. Now, uh, compared with some of the other entries, we just weren't able to, uh, to get that kind of detail.
5: And hey, I think it's about time that we played a, a full-fledged excerpt on our program, don't you?
8: Okay, Dick. Uh, this is one that uh, Bill and I had talked about before we went on the air, uh, one of his favorite shows, uh, Life with Luigi.
3: invite you to enjoy Life, Life with Luigi, a new comedy show created by Cy Howard and starring that celebrated actor, Mr. J. Carol Ash with Alan Reed and Fox Wallace. <laughs> Basco left Italy to start his new life in America. He promised his mother that he would write and tell her about his adventures. So now, let's read Luigi's letter
4: as he writes to Mama Basco in Italy.
3: Dear Mommy, well, now that I'm here in America over a year, I'm getting to act like real America. All day long, I'm going to play the radio. <laughs> I'm a listening to what they call a disc jockey. That's the fellow. That's the fellow who no kind of sing, acts, or make the funny jokes, but he's got a big talent for playing a phonograph.
10: <laughs> 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 the Louie, my friend! <laughs>
0: Hello, Luigi. Hello, hello. Hello, Pasquale. Hey, Luigi, my daughter Rosa asked me I should give you this letter. Huh? Oh, Valentine card. But Pasquale, Valentine's Day is in February. For my daughter Rosa, every day is a Valentine. <laughs> Go
10: ahead, Luigi.
0: Read what she's writing you inside. All right, sir.
10: Let
3: me see. Go ahead. Roses are red, violets are blue. If you marry me, I'll marry you.
10: <laughs>
0: well, what do you ask of
3: my father? Pasquale, well, if I'm a want to be sensible... I'm, I'm...
0: not ask you to be sensible. Be stupid and marry my daughter. <laughs> no, Pasquale, she's fat. Fat, the the Professor, there you go with the professor talk again. And, Louise, you remember one thing. Like a professor Einstein says... Everything in life has got a relative. <laughs> huh? Sure, roses weigh two hundred and fifty pounds, but compared to the fat lady in the circus is weigh seven hundred and fifty pounds, or to the elephant that's to weigh two tons. Roses are just a drop in a bucket. Who uh, buys a bucket. <laughs> the you, was a for something much bigger.
3: Bigger what's to that?
10: <laughs> Rosa!
0: Rosa! Rosa! <laughs> Rosa, say hello to Luigi.
10: <laughs> <laughs> hello, Luigi. Hello,
0: yes. <laughs> Rosa, Luigi's have a very bad week. Make him feel good. Tell him something nice and tender. Something nice and
3: tender? Yes,
0: Hot all right, all right, Luigi. But uh, let's talk about you and your future. Future? Yes. Believe me, it's only one job for a fella like you who's got uh, no talent.
3: What the job is this?
0: Husband.
6: This is the Golden Age of Radio with Dick Bertel. Brought to you by Burrett Mutual Savings Bank. Serving Central Connecticut since 1889. And by 1080 Radio, WTIC, Hartford. Buying a new car in 1972? If so,
4: bank credit may cost you less. At Burrup Mutual Savings Bank, we offer low-cost, convenient auto loans. But we can do more than just put you on the road. We help you establish credit with a bank. We give you cash buyer leverage. And above all, you either start or continue a relationship with a large and progressive mutual savings bank. Once your credit is established, you may want to purchase a new home, improve your existing home, or take a personal loan to finance your trip across the country. Whatever your borrowing needs, it will pay you to start doing business with the big B, Barrett Mutual Savings Bank. Once an established Barrett customer with good credit, you become a preferred Barrett borrower. So, don't wait. Come into
5: any office of the Big B. Barrett Mutual Savings Bank. Bill Owen, co-author of The Big Broadcast, from 1920 to 1950, a new, revised, and greatly expanded edition of Radio's Golden Age. Our guest tonight here on the Golden Age of Radio.
9: I think there are two areas in which radio really reigns supreme, and if you're going to compare it with television, which we all inevitably do, I, I think the areas it really stands out are... Radio comedy compared with the situation comedy that you see on television, if you can call it that, and the area of the mysteries, the mystery shows, which I guess encompasses some of the detectives such as uh, the shadow and so on but uh, to this day I, I don't think that uh, that you can ever get the chill bumps that you do uh, listening to some of the old recordings, even the out of date ones the the, the uh, material which is uh, non non topical you know completely gone as far as we're concerned. Um, it's it's thrilling. Inner Sanctum, I think, is the classic example. When it tried to uh, make it on television, it came across as a spoof. They tried to be very serious, the mm-hmm. creaking door and everything. It just didn't make it. But I don't think too many people laughed when Raymond Edwards was opening that door on, <laughs> on Inner Sanctum on radio. No, I, I doubt that very much. Bill, you grew up in this
5: uh, era, and you're active in it today. Uh, looking back, researching it as you have... Do you find that it was a, uh, a more imaginative time, a more exciting time in which to work if you were in the uh, field?
9: Well, I guess as a youngster, I always wanted to be in radio, and uh, unfortunately, I came along at the uh, at the moment in which radio was was changing its form. I, I sometimes think we shouldn 't even use the word radio anymore because it 's uh, we certainly don't have radio programs as such, uh, no, mass entertainment, <laughs> except this one. <laughs> but the mass entertainment is completely change. It's a service, and in many ways, it's it's of more value, possibly, to society in the present form, with the emphasis on news coverage and so on. But uh, I, I just can't help but think of radio without a sense of sadness that we're missing something. Particularly, this generation, I think, is is uh, is being deprived of a tremendous. Uh, Medium of entertainment. Of course, radio, when it was at its peak in the 30s and 40s, uh, it came along at a very propitious moment in history because, uh, uh, first of all, the economics of the time were such that uh, you, could, you could afford maybe to buy radio, and that was about it. Not too many people could afford to even go to the, the theater, even though they, the tickets were only 11 cents for children and 16 for adults, most parts around the country. So there was no television. Uh, access to the Broadway theater was limited to the n- people of the Northeast. Uh, so what else was there? In addition, the news events of the time were becoming so important. Now, whether radio was responsible for causing the news events or was just witnessing them, I think you could debate that endlessly. But uh, had radio come along years later or years earlier, I don't think it would have had this tremendous impact. It, it was guided divinely, I'm convinced, and, and uh, uh, therefore all America and the world indeed was listening to radio.
5: And, of course, it was a, a special art form, and I think of it as an art form, as I'm sure you do, Bill, it, it simply wasn't television without pictures, was it?
9: That'll raise hackles if anybody says <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it, it's a natural thing to think of it as a forerunner of television, but it, it, it's a totally different medium. I think we pointed out by references to uh, Inner Sanctum, Fibber McGee, who could not make it on television. Uh, it, it's just a different ball game, completely, and uh, you may as well compare any other two media you want as to pick out radio and television. I think the the thing that links them is the fact that people from radio automatically moved into television because they were there and the same facilities were being used. Many of the announcers bridged the gap. But the the techniques of acting, for example, to just uh, home in on one particular area, totally different uh, uh, techniques. And some actors could make it, could bridge the gap, and some couldn't. Carl Swenson went very nicely from radio to television without missing a beat. Mm-hmm. Others fell by the wayside. This applied to announcers, applied to writers, directors. It's, uh, it's a different area. It's, uh, as we all know, it's an area in which you had to use the imagination. The listener participated more. I always had the feeling as a youngster, I don't know whether I'm alone in this, but that when I came across a show on radio that grabbed me, usually children's entertainment, uh, I had the feeling that this show was written just for me. I'm the only one in the world that is listening in on this private conversation, Uh, Dick Tracy or Superman, whatever it was. Whereas in television, I have the feeling they're just throwing this thing out like a shotgun, scattering shot, and they don't really care whether you like it or not. This is what you're (laughs) going to get.
5: Very interesting. How about uh, time out now for another excerpt from the past?
8: Well, uh, Dick, this one here, uh, I have to be the expert for a change. Uh, I'm looking at The Witch's Tale in the book here. And well, I guess
5: you are entitled to be <laughs> the
9: expert on this one. <laughs> and
8: uh, <laughs> I pointed out to Bill that the uh, the um, opening that they use is from the Australian version of the show. That's and, incredible. Uh, I'd like to play the American version. You know, Where did I get the
9: Australian
5: version? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even been to Australia. <laughs> Not from Ed's file, I'll tell you.
8: So uh, why don't we uh, play you know this version and uh, maybe you can make a revision uh, your okay. next time you put the book out.
10: Right.
0: we bring you The Witch's Tale, written and produced by
4: Alonzo Dean Cole. And now let us make our way to ancient Salem, where old Nancy and Satan, her black cat, reside.
11: (laughs) Hannah, I'm 31 year old, I be today. Yes, sir. Hannah, I'm 31 year old. We'll say them. here. all these folks be gathered to hear another of our pretty little bedtime stories. And tonight, we're going to tell them one that's become famous all over the world. Douse out them lights. That's right. Nice and dark and cheerful now. (laughs) Sitting in the spooky shadows is the way to hear our pretty tales. Now draw up to the fire and gaze into embers, Gaze into them deep and soon you'll be with us in Switzerland. Soon you'll hear our yarn of Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein! <laughs> Madame Oh, that's a warm one. Just wait a
12: minute. Oh, good evening, Madame Maurice. Good evening. Hmm. raining cats and dogs. Step inside so I can get this door closed.
11: Yes. And give
12: Madame me that wet umbrella before you drip it all over my clean floor. <laughs> oh, you men of science. I suppose I should be used to your carelessness after keeping house for Victor Frankenstein.
2: He's a very young scientist, Madame Moritz. Just wait until he reaches my age.
12: Oh, you make me shudder.
2: (laughs) And where is our Victor?
12: In his laboratory? Is he ever anywhere else? If I didn't believe that he calls up the devil in that laboratory, there are times when I'd go in and drag him out by the hair of his head, despite his forbidding me ever to enter the place. I cannot enter that laboratory of his... But he cannot close up my ears. At night I hear strange sounds from there. The cries of animals in pain. And then from him, who has always been so kind. Insane shouts of triumph. And I have seen the things strange men bring in this house. Hideous things from the slaughterhouses and and the bogs. He's coming out. Hear him? Yes, from the way he keeps it locked up, one would think that laboratory was filled with the rarest jewels. Well, good mm-hmm. evening, Victor. Oh, mm-hmm. Professor Waldman,
1: I'm, I'm so glad you received my message and came at once. If you weren't as
12: mad as you, we wouldn't have come in this awful rain. Is
1: it? Is it raining? Is it raining? That's too bad. For this evening, Madame Moritz, I must send you to your sister's.
12: My sister's in this downfall. I'll, I'll
1: call a cab for you. I hate to ask you, but tonight, Professor Waldman and I must have the house alone. This is the night for which I have worked so long. The night on which I shall perfect the crowning achievement of the world. Oh, what
12: are you talking about? What have you done? My
1: dear old nurse, tomorrow I shall tell you. I shall tell you everything tomorrow. I, I shall tomorrow I shall show you the work of my hands that shall make my
12: name ring through the
1: ages night, you must go. You
12: finished your work.
1: Yes, yes, uh, you must go now. There'll be
12: no more dead men's bodies coming through that door. No, no. No more refuge from the slaughterhouse. No,
1: dear, please go, please go. I'm
12: going at once, even though I catch my death of cold in this awful rain. It's worth it to know you've finished.
1: Now, Victor, you are delirious with excitement. What have you discovered? Wait until she's out of hearing. She wouldn't understand. Well, she's gone. Now, what is this mystery of yours? Come into the laboratory. You shall see. Professor Wallman... From the putrescence of death, I have discovered the secret of life. Life, yes. I, Victor Frankenstein, have created man. See, you see what I have done. Bit by bit, I have fashioned him: his organs, his eyes, his brain, his external flesh—a beautiful giant statue. Ah, but a statue only until I give him life. And now the time has come. That is why I sent for you, old teacher. You who pointed out the path. Oh, I know nothing of all oh, this. Oh yes, you sent me to the ancients for forgotten knowledge. Through them I learned of magic and the hidden truths of nature. Oh, Victor, you are mad. You frightened me. I am not mad. The treasure house of nature, I have wrested her dearest secret. It is in this machine. I pull the lever. Watch. The moment he will live, and I have improved on nature. I have improved on God. Why, the giant moves. Yes. It's pulsational in the veins. In a moment, he will rise and walk. Great God. No, great Frankenstein.
3: Victor, that the beautiful contours of his body are changing. Huh? Yes, the flesh is assuming the look of death. It's shriveling like a mummy.
10: Sorry.
3: It's becoming ugly. shape But you have created
10: a horror. Machine, Please. let me turn it off. Oh, so too late, he breathes. <laughs> God. Made a monster.
5: Our guest tonight is Bill Owen, co-author of the Big Broadcast, the new revised and greatly expanded edition of Radio's Golden Age, the uh, complete listing or almost complete listing <laughs> of,
9: uh, of all the radio shows that were ever on the air. You know, so, you mentioned almost complete, and and uh, I got the scare of my life. Uh, we know we'll never have every show. No matter how many years we keep researching. But this thing was just about ready to go to press in the original version, and I got in touch with Mary Jane Higby, which I'd been for a long time, and she said, by the way, do you have everything on Elsie Beebe? I said, Elsie Beebe? And uh, she said, well, that was one of the biggest soap operas of all. You must have. And that really tightened my heart muscles. Sure. I said, well, I, I never even heard of it. i got to be honest. She says, how could you be researching radio and never have heard of Elsie Beebe? I said, I'm sorry. I missed it somehow. And I said, was it known by any other title? She says, yes, Life Can Be Beautiful.
10: <laughs> <laughs> and
9: you can see from the initials of Life Can... And she said, nobody in the trade ever referred to it as Life Can Be Beautiful. It was always this was L-C-B. an in thing. B-B. All the actors would say, yeah. Yeah, I got a job next week in LCBB. So great. I was saved on that one. <laughs> Mary Jane Higby, of course, uh, appeared in how many countless shows, Bill? Well, she did that show, When a Girl Marries for, what was it, 18 years or something like that. Yeah. Had to, thousands of broadcasts. Mm-hmm. This is one of the great things, I think, that... Some of us take comfort in, possibly subconsciously, in radio was the stability of it all. You know, it it we didn't go through that business for the most part of of constantly changing the time slots. I don't know how the kids today keep up with their favorite television That's shows right. because you knew that that show was on. Uh, Red Skelton, for example, was on in the Midwest nine thirty uh, on on uh, when on Tuesday nights year after year after year, and it always had the same lineup. There was always Fibber McGee and then there was Bob Hope, and then there was uh, Red Skelton, and you could set your watch by these programs coming on. And I think we took comfort. Also, the, the stability of the sponsors. The sponsors did not uh, sit there and, and uh, worry uh, every week about the ratings. They simply bought a show for the year, and in many cases they went on for 15, 20 years and stayed with the show. Look at the identification of, of some of the, the product sponsors today, you you, you know, like, like Jack Armstrong and Little Orphan Annie and so on. Can you pass by the cereal shelf at
5: a supermarket and go by the Wheaties box yeah. without thinking yeah. of Jack Perfect Armstrong. Perfect example, <laughs> isn't it's it?
9: Yeah, I, I'm sure that, that the people uh, who made Wheaties in those days and promoted the, were not really aware of what tremendous impact they were going to have for years to come long after Jack Armstrong had ceased uh, touring the world. <laughs> you mentioned Red Skelton
5: uh, a while earlier. We haven't had Red Skelton on this program in, in some time. As a matter of fact, Ed... Tonight, we're going to hear a Red Skelton excerpt from my collection.
8: Oh, gee, I'm fired.
5: (laughs) (laughs) This I happened to record off the air, Bill, back in 1950. Oh, sure. And uh, this was at a time when CBS was making an attempt to bring all of the top comedians from uh, both networks together together. On a Sunday night, you remember that? Yeah,
9: that's when NBC was no big comedians is what it stood right. for. They they bought them out literally, lock, stock, and barrel. And I guess it's a testimony of the fact that NBC saw the handwriting on the wall. Maybe they unloaded everybody. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> they got a good price for them.
3: Well, here I am. TBS, this must be the place. Yep, there's a big sign that says Tide presents Red Skelton. Tide. Tide.
10: <laughs> Boy, all
3: I got to say is it better be good this year or Tide's in and skeltons out. <laughs> Hollywood, the Red Skelton program, brought to you by Procter & Gamble's Amazing, new discovery for your whole family's watch. Tide. With Red Skelton, Dave Rose, the Four Knights, Marine title, Pat McGee and Dick Ryan, Martha Wentworth, and John Holbrook will be me, Rod O'Donnell. Busy and nervous at his home, we find MGM's answer to mighty Joe Young. Red Skelton. Well, Rod O'Connor. Gee, Red, it's good to see you. Let me take a look at yeah. you. Gosh, you haven't changed a bit. Yeah, well, okay, put me down, will you? <laughs> you? You look good, too, Rod. Well, I feel good, too. I've lost a few pounds. You mean you have investments in England?
10: <laughs> <laughs> hey, I hear that
3: every afternoon at four they serve uh, tea and a half pound cake now. <laughs> I went over to England this and I wanted to see what the American dollar looked like.
10: He <laughs> <laughs> up on you, didn't it? Huh?
3: Well, uh, how do you feel about going to a new network? Well, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Nervous. Well, you're always nervous. You should see a psychiatrist. Oh, you're kidding. Anybody who sees a psychiatrist ought to have his head examined. <laughs> That's a brilliant remark,
10: is Oh, uh, you're yeah.
4: not
3: uh, really that nervous. I'm not, huh? Last night I put my pants to bed and I hung over the chair all night. <laughs> Well, okay, I'll help you dress. Uh, Yeah. Where do you keep your shorts? In the third drawer. Clean shirts? Third drawer. Your suit? In the third drawer. Well, how can you keep all your clothes in one drawer? You're married. Stop asking silly
10: questions.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, come on now and get dressed. You know, you promised to stop by and pick up the four nights. Oh, yeah. Did you know that they're going to night school now? No. What are they studying? Hydramatics. Hydramatics?
10: Oh, no. Yeah, Yeah, they're they're, they're
3: studying hydramatics. (laughs) dramatic? Yeah. <laughs> 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 As in case anything goes wrong, they'll know how to shift for themselves.
10: <laughs>
3: well, come on, let's get down to CBS. My car's stacked up in the backyard here. Okay. Hey, Rod, you sit in the back. There's more room. Okay. Okay. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here comes that nasty old neighbor of mine at Mrs. Fussy. Let's get Mr. Stilton! Mr. Skelton... I'm sorry,
13: I can't talk now, Mrs. Fussy. I'm on the air. That, Mr. Skelton, is why we can't get rid of the smog in Los Angeles. Miss Fussy, look... Mr. Skelton, I don't have to take that kind of talk from you. And would you mind standing in the shade? The sun is over my house, and you're getting some of it on you. (laughs) But look, I... I'm warning you... If you get a tan from my son, when you peel, you'd better give the skin back to me.
3: Oh, really, now? Don't I...
13: you ever stop talking. <laughs> and another thing. While you were gone this summer, I found some of your aunts taking sugar from my kitchen and putting it in a hole in your yard. <laughs> oh, how sneaky can you get? <laughs> if my husband Jessup were only here.
3: You had a husband?
13: Now, what kind of a soaring remark was that? You don't think I could attract a man? Oh,
3: sure you could. You've got everything that a man wants. Muscles, mustache. <laughs>
13: well, that does it. I'll get up a petition. And to think I was so happy when I heard you were going to CBS, I thought they meant China, Burma, and Saipan. <laughs>
3: You know, I think I'm winning her over. Oh, uh, here come the four knights. Yeah, sounds more like the four horsemen. Hiya, fellas. Come on, get
10: in the car.
0: We're
10: late. Hey, uh, uh, what are you guys gonna sing on the show? do the huckabucks. <laughs> you do the huckabucks. <laughs> and you do the huckabucks. you do the 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 oh, yeah. and be
5: oh, yeah. Our guest tonight is Bill Owen, <laughs> co-author of The Big Broadcast, the uh, marvelous collection of... Uh, all of the great radio shows that we heard here in America back in the 30s and yeah, 40s. Dick,
8: I don't think I to mention the pictures. They're very good, too. There's a whole, uh, whole section. you like to show a few? <laughs> yeah. Once you get the <laughs> yeah. camera on there and we'll
5: look at them. You but at what? any rate,
9: uh, yes, go ahead. I, I was going to say, it's it's interesting to, uh, uh, going through the book, you can see names that, that pop up at you. And so often we've had the reaction, gee, I didn't know they were on radio. People like Richard Widmark. We think of them solely as Hollywood performers. And uh, and I jotted down uh, some of the other names of people who came from radio into Hollywood. Brian Dunleavy was one. Kenan Wynn, who was on The Shadow for many years. Uh, Van Heflin. uh, I I had a letter from Van Heflin probably uh, three months or so before he died. And uh, he said that he couldn't even remember these radio shows. He had done so many of them, and I'd asked him some specific questions. And uh, he couldn't even say whether he had actually played those particular roles. He said, gee, I was so busy in those days. But it was so typical. Robert Walker, uh, Frank Lovejoy, of course, was one of, oh, one of the very great performers. Oh, yes. And then some people kind of specialized in television, like Cliff Arquette, who had played the old-timer uh, on Fever McGee, was one of the two that played that. Charlie Weaver, of course. Gary Moore made a rather successful jump. Lucille Wall, not Ball, but Wall, who was... Seen every afternoon on General Hospital. She's the head nurse, you know, on on, uh, whatever floor the action all takes place. Well, we get
8: Santis Ortega. Santis
9: Ortega must have been every detective ever conceived on radio. (laughs) B. Benadaret was uh, was one of Jack Benny's telephone Uh, operators, remember? Sure, sure. What are you going to do for us, Ed? You're going to surprise us. You're going to uh, show us that
5: this book, the big broadcast <laughs> of uh, 1920 to 1950, isn't that complete. I'll shoot it down. Yeah, I hate
8: to embarrass <laughs> our guests here, really. Uh, this is n- Nothing uh, personally got this, Bill, but uh, you know, maybe I can be an author someday myself. Right. But I'd like to uh, just play a few things that aren't in the book to show you that they did exist. Okay. Uh, one of them is uh, Admiral Byrd, and uh, this You didn't
9: make these up in your home studio. No, this
8: is... Uh, Admiral Burry was a great hero of the 30s, and he actually does appear in his show in person, as they will definitely say in the excerpt.
0: Adventures
3: with Admiral Burry.
0: Another thrilling episode from the breathtaking career of America's greatest living explorer. And again, it is our privilege to present in person Admiral Richard E. Byrd.
2: Thank you and greetings, everyone. I was away at the Advanced Weather Outpost when the following incident occurred. I got the whole story later on my return, but heard part of it by radio when it happened. The auto-gyro, an experiment in an exploration, was the pride and joy of Bill McCormick, who tested along like a proud father. The rest of the mechanics and pilots at Little America regarded the autogyro as a sort of ugly dunk- duckling of aviation. At the end of the winter night, all the aircraft had to be dug out from the underground chambers we had built to protect them from the extreme cold and the storms. One of the first to appear was the auto gyro. Once it was uncovered, the whole camp turned out to haul it to the surface. A mean job in the bitter cold. For some men, it was the first time out in the open in four months. But now let's see what happens.
3: Hey, hey, Seamus, will you level off this top of ice on the runway? It'll have to be a whole lot more level than it is. I will never be able to budge the other gyro. Okay, Bowling. <laughs> Come on, fellas, let's make with the shovels over here. It's too bumpy yet. Oh, okay. Right over. Hey, back. how are you coming with an ropes? The snow ropes are all secured to the gyro, Bowling. But, but I'm afraid our body will be too brittle. I'll get back to look her over before we start a hornet to the surface. All right. Hey, Mac.
10: Hey, Come here.
3: Yeah, what's up? What's up? Are you ready to start her out of the hole? Almost, Mac. Yep. Come all ah, right. There. There. The on. Come, on. Come on. All set again. All right, Let's this go.
5: time get her going, will you? Hey. Hey. Oh! Hey. Oh! Hey. All right, that's a bit of uh, Admiral Bird, dating back. Ed,
7: what's oh, your that's, guess? That's
8: got to be mid thirties, anyway, Dick. Maybe even earlier
7: than that. Get smile power. The kind of confident, contented countenance that comes from cash, salted away cash, in a buried mutual savings bank at the highest legal savings bank interest rate. And you don't need a lot of money to do it. You can save a little. It's the constant, patient, every payday habit of saving that really counts. At the Big B, we love your small deposits. We know they grow for you and for us result, we will both have smile power. Plus, we help with our high interest rates paid to you on your savings. Burritt Mutual Savings Bank. Deposits insured to $20,000 by FDIC.
5: This this next one has a, a mighty title. I'm oh, surprised. Yeah. This, this, that, is uh, real, uh,
7: this is a I'll, real. This is a although I
5: never heard of it, Bill. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that it's a
7: really big
8: show. This next one. This was the Academy Award theater. This was done out of Hollywood, and uh, they actually broadcast um, movies that were nominated or received the Academy Award. And the actually ex- I'm going to play tonight is uh, Foreign Correspondent, which uh, was a Hitchcock film back in the uh, in the late 40s, or I guess it was early 40s, just before World War II. And uh, this speech is Joseph Cotton. So um, you got your notebook out, Bill? getting yeah. Are you of all this down. There was now? another
9: prominent radio actor, Joseph Cotton. Sure. Here he is.
0: The House of Squibb presents
4: Academy Awards.
3: Every week, Squibb brings you Hollywood's finest. The great picture plays, the great actors and actresses. Techniques and skills chosen from the honor roll of those who have won or been nominated for the famous Golden Oscar of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And now, E.R. Squibb and Sons, manufacturing chemist to the medical profession since 1858, bring you one of Hollywood's best known stars, Joseph Cotton. Tonight you will hear Mr. Cotton in the exciting drama, Foreign Correspondent, which was nominated for four different Oscars. Yes, for Best Photography, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Production of the Year. Foreign Correspondent was nominated for the 1940 Academy Award. <laughs>
4: Well, come right in, Miss Green. Put on your glasses, sit down, and take an epic. No, Miss Green, this is not to be an editorial for the Sunday edition. This is to be some notes on my lurid past. You see, before I came here to Springfield and bought this paper and became a substantial citizen, I was a reporter, Miss Green. Johnny Jones, foreign correspondent. <laughs> That was long before there was even a phony war. I was sent to Europe to meet a man called Van Meer, known as the Strong Man of Holland. He had been one of the signers of a secret treaty between Holland and the Allied Powers. I was to get Van Meer to talk and to tell me what was in that treaty. My wife's maiden name is Carol Fisher. Her father was head of the Universal Peace Party. I met Carol over there and fell for her like a ton. When she went down to Amsterdam with her father, I went too. There was a conference there, and I intended to kill two birds with one stone. For Van Meer was to be the principal speaker. I had met old Van Meer in Paris, so I didn't have much trouble nailing him when he got out of a cab in front of the conference building and started up the steps. He didn't seem very happy to see me. Why, Mr. Van Meer? how are you? We, we somehow seem to lose each other, sir. Don't you remember me? I'm the American reporter from New York. Seemed anxious to get away from me. Seemed not to remember me. Just then a photographer jumped out in front of him. Hold it, Picture. I pointed his camera at this Van Mere, and Van Mere's eyes got very big. And then I saw the gun in the photographer's hand. It went off there. I guess I stood there like a goon, just watching Van Mere fall. He was dead when he stopped rolling down the steps. This phony photographer dropped his camera and ran into the crowd. I ran after him. He got in a car and roared away. <laughs> I looked for a car, and just then my sweet Carl comes riding up in the Bentley with one of those big blonde Englishmen at the wheel. I jumped into the car, pushed Carl over, and yelled at the handsome brute. Follow that car, quick, hurry!
7: Might as well humor him.
4: right
3: What's the trouble? Chap shot someone?
4: Ben assassinated. Dead? Looks like it. Hmm, bad show. Couldn't be worse from his point of view.
3: Shooting at us by Harry. Shattered the safety glass. Wonder whose make. Better hop into the back, old girl.
4: Good chauffeur we've got, Miss Fisher.
7: Very. You two know each other? Oh, I forgot. This is Scott Folliott, newspaper man, same as you, Johnny, correspondent of London Post. Mister Jones, Folliott.
3: How do you do? Here we are, old chap. Out in the country and very desolate, if you ask me. On his tail, he's around that curve behind the window. have him, then, old boy. Here we go. I say. The Japanese car disappeared, vanished. He couldn't have.
4: He has. Look at that the sails on that windmill. Well, quite common over here in Holland, old boy. I could have sworn those sails were going against the wind just now.
3: Why don't you lie down on the wet grass, old boy, and cool off?
4: I'll cool off at the proper time, but first would you do me a favor and go back and get the police?
3: Police? What for? We
4: shan't need the police. I've decided not to prosecute you. are going to bring the police back here because our man is in there. In what? In that windmill.
3: What makes you think so?
4: While I'm explaining a lot of things can happen, will you please take my word for it and get the police? I'd go myself if I spoke the language. Uh, what will you do? I'll stick around here and do some snooping. I hate to seem executive, but this is serious.
3: Right, you are old boy. You Shall have the police. Regiment of them.
4: There I was on a lonely flat plane with nothing but a windmill for company. Suddenly the mill stopped, and the sails reversed themselves against the wind. At the same time, I heard the drone of a plane. Then I knew. The reverse sails were a signal. The plane came into land. I crept up to the mill. There was a shed there and in it the assassin's car I went back and into the mill then I heard muffled voices I crept around some more and found a wooden staircase I went up there was a door with a key in it I heard someone coming after me I pushed backwards into the room closed the door I was in the transmission room the room with the wooden gears connected with the big sail outside I stood there listening suddenly I almost jumped out of my skin a weak voice spoke. I mean, Mr. I whirled around and there, tied to a ring in the floor, was Van Mere alive.
1: I'm afraid you see me at a great disadvantage. I have just been given a drug of some sort. It affects the brain. They gave it to me when they moved me from... It's beginning now.
0: I'm sorry. But I... Uh... I saw you shot just now outside the conference hall. I saw it. The man you saw shot was not I. He
1: was a substitute who looked like me. But why? But they want the world to think that I have been assassinated to conceal the fact that I'm in their hands.
4: Their hands? Well, who, who are they?
1: I cannot explain. I am not certain... All that they can tell you is that they are going to take me somewhere by
4: plane. Van Meer's head dropped, and I jumped for the crossbeam above me, pulled myself up, and lay there near the big gear. The door opened, four men came in, picked up Van Meer, and took him away. When they had gone, when the plane had died away, I got out of there fast. I came back with the cops, and they thought I was nuts. There was no assassin's car, no assassin, no plane, and no Van Meer. <laughs> I. I laughed it off and went over to London with a big newsbeat in my pocket. I wanted to see Carl's father and find out if he could help me. The butler opened the door and there was my future father-in-law having breakfast with a man whose face was the face that led the guttural voices up to take Van Meer away from
5: the mill. Bill, uh, you must receive correspondence from from people all over the country. Do you saying uh... I'm not mentioned in the book, <laughs> I did uh, you many Dick years. Patelison
8: in there for one.
9: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. This is, he didn't do any work either, but... Uh. Well, this is one of the problems. We'll hear from somebody. They'll say, hey, I played a supporting actor on Ma Perkins, you know, 24 years ago. How come I'm not in there? Uh, the question is, do I just take him at his word? Uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I, I just don't know. So we, we have to make decisions occasionally. And uh, people do have faulty memories. So it's like raking leaves. You can never get every leaf gathered up. So uh, I guess what we've done, we just get as much as we can, as much as we're certain of. Dates, i tell you, the, the real problem spots. Dates are very difficult because we might have somebody with an excellent memory, but they'll say, yeah, that was back in the 40s. Well, I want to know, when, when did that broadcast begin?
5: You know, that about wraps it up for us, and... Uh Gosh, this hour has gone by all too quickly, Bill.
9: You can go on and on and on. You, <laughs> we
5: will, I'm sure, <laughs> after the show <laughs> you know, is off, too. Getting into the future of radio,
9: there's another whole topic. You know, you can talk for hours. Will it come back or won't it?
5: In the meantime, Bill Owen, thank you very much for being our guest. Co-author, along with Frank Buxton, of The Big Broadcast, published by Viking Press. A complete collection of the radio shows of the 1920s through the 1950s. This is Dick Bertell. This is Ed Corcoran.
6: Good night. The Golden Age of Radio with Dick Bertel and the recordings of Ed Corcoran is brought to you by Burritt Mutual Savings Bank, serving Central Connecticut since 1889, and by WTIC. With recording and technical supervision by Bob Shirego, the Golden Age of Radio is edited and produced by Brian Hartnett. This is Al Terzi. ah,
3: ah, ah don't touch that dial. Listen to.
0: The Kraft Foods Company presents Willard Waterman as the Great Gildersleeve.
3: Texaco service stations and dealers in all of 48 states present for your entertainment Eddie Duchin and his music. Graham <laughs> McNamee and Edwin the Fire Chief. <laughs>